you've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to episode 394 of the Black Man with a Gun Show. This week, we're turning a corner. We're changing some stuff up. Oh, I feel good. I can't wait to tell you about it. Boom, 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 boom. This is the Black Man with a Gun Show. Pro-Gun Podcast. And I'm your host, Ken Blanchard. All right, this is the Pro-Rights, Pro-Gun, Pro-Fun Podcast for the cool people in the gun community. Yes, I am your host, Ken Blanchard, and for the next few minutes... We're going to be talking about gun rights, about hunting, about protection, about terrorism. And I got a new focus all together. I'm going to share all of that in the next couple of minutes. After John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to get on with the episode that uh, that gets good to you like Cold Stone ice cream. You like it, you love it, and you got to have it. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. This show is part of the Blanchard Media Group Network. Blanchard Media Group is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. When you get a chance, go to BlanchardMediaGroup.com and check out the links. It doesn't take too much to make me happy these days. I've been through a lot. Today, I'm smiling like a big dog. If you take a look at the website for blackmanwithagun.com right now, you'll see some changes that have been made. And some of the things you don't see are slow cooking like beef brisket smothered in gravy, carrots, dill, potatoes, and peppers. Hmm, can you smell it? This is my 15th year online as the black man with a gun. You know, that was the year that the Euro was established. The year that the Sopranos debate de- debuted. Wayne Gretzky retired. Star Wars, The Phantom Menace came out. And George Bush announced that he was going to run for president. Back then, Putin became president of, of Russia. And there were earthquakes, terrorism. Apple created the big G4 computer. And folks were worried about Y2K. And here I am with this website called Black Man with a Gun. Well, Since then, I've used it and this podcast to entertain, educate, and enlighten you as best I could about what I know and what I've learned without getting myself in trouble. You know, I've stretched the bounds of your patience, and I've tried a little bit of everything. The good news is I have motivated and inspired a lot of folks to say, man, if that dude can do it, I know I can. Am I right? This week, I realized it was time for this old boy to take the lead again. I am still an artist, a content-creating, podcast-producing, rough, tough, can't-get-enough, writer, actor, speaking machine. Told you I was feeling good. I am where I'm supposed to be right now, believe it or not. Not counting that money thing, financially, uh, but where it counts. Between the ears, in my heart, in my spirit, I feel good. This podcast and the blog connected to it now has some new contributors to make it something you want to check out. If you're into hunting, protecting yourself and your family, firearms, gun rights, and for the cool people in the community. With a little help from some old and some new friends, I'm remaking the brand Black Man with a Gun. It's no longer just about me. It represents a free American. It's going to be a resource to empower we the people. 
You know that none of us is as strong as all of us. And you've heard me quote that ancient Ashante proverb for decades now. Maybe they know it's Ashante, but that's where it's coming from. The focus of the site is going to be to encourage you and give you some truth about guns, about terrorism, about law, about gun rights, about history and hunting. You may have noticed some of the posts that came out this weekend. I'm learning how to delegate and share my blessings. Gun Rights Magazine contributor, friend and brother from another mother, David B. Cole, is now my principal man for firearms commentary, gun rights opinion and training. David is a security professional. I got my longtime friend, Suzanne McComas, author, private investigator, mother, friend, and a professional that has more guts than a lot of men I know, should be contributing here. She works with the incarcerated. She will go where no man has gone before and will get your butt out of harm's way. Oh, don't get me started on this woman. She's tops. I got a hunting guy. Owns his own company that makes stuff for hunting products or makes hunting products for us. He's going to keep us grounded in the American traditions of hunting. His name is Joshua Jordan. And then I got a guy that is huge. I just didn't know him. He's been a long time listener of his show, he says. And man, he honored me with partnering with me here. His name is Don L. Rondo. Recognized expert on terrorism, homeland security issues, and preparedness. Yeah. He's going to tell us why you need to get ready. This is an introduction to our introduction. I'm blessed, I tell you. And I'm blessed to have you as a friend and a listener. Brother Rondo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me. Man, we're going to make some groundbreaking stuff right here, and um, I'm I'm so happy to have you on the team. You know, as I said offline, I'm I've been a fan of yours for some time. I'm very excited to officially link up with you, and you know, I, I'm as I, this is just a, a great day for me. I, I'm excited. We're gonna put away all the the resume stuff. I'll I'll link that up on the site eventually because you're going to be a long time contributor to the site and help folks get from where they are now to a better place. So let's talk about some of the threats that we all have right now today in the U.S. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, interesting and troubling times right now. Uh, So we have a kind of a confluence of man-made and natural threats Hmm. that we're being faced with right now. And, and, And the reason that's important, Ken, is because often it, it takes more than one type of incident to create a crisis. So you look at what's happening right now with Ebola, for instance. Can Ebola by itself create a national emergency in the short term? Maybe. I, I don't believe that's the case. But can Ebola, the threat of Ebola or an actual Ebola, Ebola incident coupled with, for instance, a man-made threat or incident create a national emergency. I believe that that is where, you know, we have to be alert. So you start to think about terrorist groups, ISIS, remnants of other 
radical Islamist groups or homegrown terrorists. And you start to think about kind of how they serve to multiply uh, the impact of each other. So you, you can have a situation where you have uh, an Ebola outbreak, an enterovirus outbreak, coupled with a terrorist incident. And, you know, that would do a couple of things. First of all, it would tax our nation's response resources. So your police and emergency services resources would be stretched thin. It would certainly create panic. And panic is what really what gets people killed in these circumstances. That's when the bad stuff happens. So panic means people are making bad decisions, uninformed decisions. Uh, people are buying things they don't need or and then they find that the resources, for instance, in grocery stores, you know, in this country, we have probably about a two to three day stockpile of food on the shelves in grocery stores. And so that's when things go from bad to worse. Our reaction to uh, a natural and man-made event uh, at the same time can be devastating. That's huge, man. So we got Ebola, ISIS or ISIL, the uh, remnants, the AQ folks, and then just our own homegrown nuts that want to that they just I just they're bored. They want to get into the fight, somebody's fight. And that that actually is bigger than anybody's talked about. Um, there are a lot of folks who sit on the sideline and want to get involved. Um, they their own lives are all whatever. And they see ISIS and ISIL and the fight in Syria as a, a chance to. I don't know, get a part of something. Those guys live in our neighborhoods right now. Well, well certainly we have extremists living among us. And, you know, I think one of the things we have to look at from a national policy perspective is, you know, recognizing that we have extremists. We have to make sure that we have policy and leadership that supports the ability to, one, uh, impact the threat associated with extremists. And then if we use kind of what you just touched on, Ken, you just spoke of the fact that you have people out there who are motivated to get involved in something. It's a, it, it doesn't seem possible, but I can tell you from firsthand experience that you can task those people productively. So if you have people who are on the fence, but who are motivated to act, you can educate them so that they're not tricked or trapped by the wrong ideology and put them on the right track. And I think, you know, from a national policy perspective, you know, we owe it to ourselves uh, to apply leadership and start a dialogue that educates people who are on the cusp and make sure that they're not radicalized uh, and posing a threat to their own country. So that moves us to what should we do now? What's what can we do? Well, I, I think so. A strong nation is comprised of strong communities and strong neighborhoods and strong prepared individuals. And so I'm always a proponent of building from the ground up, making sure that each household, each person is prepared. You know that to me, that certainly means educating yourself about the threats, both man-made and natural, uh, that uh, you're exposed to, but the ability to defend yourself as well. Um, and so for me, we want, we want to make sure that we are embracing, uh, policy law and rights that support the second amendment, 
uh, and your ability to for a law law abiding citizen to defend themselves. Um, the other thing we have to do, Ken, is really start to take a look at you know how we can educate the individual to self sustain during a crisis. So, you know what we learned to some degree during Hurricane Katrina and other uh, man-made events like the D.C. area sniper attacks, that far too often the preparedness plan of many is to call 911. Right. And, you know, that's not really a plan. That might be a component to a plan, but the reality is during a crisis, you're going to be one of many calling 911 uh, very rapidly our, uh, those types of response resources become overwhelmed. You have to be prepared to take care of you uh, for the short term and maybe longer. And, you know, the person who is, uh, you, know, they're, they're, you know, so the person who is best to protect you is you. That's the person who's there. That's the person who can make a decision in the short term to uh, protect you, to prepare you, uh, to mitigate your exposure to a risk or a threat. And so what we want to do is uh, educate and empower the individual to act on their own behalf. And that's how we build a stronger nation, uh, by being uh, a prepared citizenry. So they've they successfully made folks who prepare into a joke. They made the shows, the doomsday preppers. They made it seem like you're you're radical yourself. You're in your nutcase if you think about sustaining your life, your family, taking care of yourself more than a couple of days. How can we bring that back to reality? Well, you know, that's a great point. You know, it's uh, it's really interesting that our government has spent billions of dollars preparing itself for these threats that many feel are imminent. Maybe not. Maybe there are. Maybe they aren't. But certainly realistic enough to create entire federal agencies and programs. I, I've worked in that environment. And, and so I know that the concern that people have uh, is oftentimes grounded in reality and real. But, but on the flip side, there is this messaging, this sense of if you feel the need to prepare yourself, you are somehow nuts. Uh, you are uh, you know, uh, not grounded. All I can say is this, that generations ago, all of our grandparents and great-grandparents were preppers. They may not have called themselves preppers, but you know, they all had the ability to defend and protect and take care of their families in a crisis. You know, there were no cell phones, um, there, were, there wasn't a national highway system in some areas the way there is now. Um, you really were your own weather service, uh, your, own, uh, your own first line of defense. And, and that's where, you know, that kind of self-sustainability was a sense of pride amongst families that, you know, uh, you know. And so I, I think, you know, regardless of the shows where uh, people who prepare themselves are poked fun at, now, we have to return back to that. We have to understand the absolute reality that, you know, your listeners are their first line of defense, despite what um, TV shows indicate real life events all over the world continue to reinforce that fact. 
that you are the person best positioned to defend yourself, prepare yourself, and take care of yourself in response to a crisis. Totally. I, I remember growing up and everybody's family had a cupboard and there was canned food in that stuff. And the folks took great pains to make sure they took their best stuff and put it aside. There was firearms in the home safely stored so that in case of trouble, they were there. I mean, there was there was water. There was all the stuff that we take for granted. Seems like it was antiquated now. It's like, um, well, that was the old fashioned time, but they were better prepared then than we are today. And we got to bring that back to people's remembrance so that they don't get caught flat footed when stuff happens. Because like you said, three days, the grocery store, um, natural disaster. We're getting into the winter months. The fall's coming. Uh, we've passed the hurricane season here on the East Coast, but there's still snow and freezing rain that can shut stuff down. And all you got to do is add one of those factors, again, like you said, um, with the threat of terrorism, the threat of disease, the threat of just a homegrown terrorist deciding to do something. Why should a person arm themselves today, even though we have police departments, sheriff's departments, tons of law enforcement? Why is the onus still on us with that? You know, there there are many incidents where you uh, look at and analyze, and that's what I've done, where you can look and um, your viewers and listeners uh, should understand that in any crisis, there will be one of perhaps dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of people relying on the same resources. And recent, relatively recent circumstances like Hurricane Katrina prove that just one storm can overtax an entire nation's ability to respond. You know, prior to Hurricane Katrina, you know, keep in mind the time frame of that. We had created entire federal agencies, processes, presidential directives, new rules and Homeland Security Acts, training for our first responders and people, and still the net result was people dying, waiting for rescue on the roof of their houses, being kind of shuffled into a abandoned football stadium to wait in filth for days. You know, at the end of the day, regardless of what training, what resources we have, how many times you dial 911, the facts are in. Uh, Your listeners need to understand that the person who is best able to defend themselves against a threat, against the threat of terrorism, against the threat of organized crime, gangs, well, it's them. It's the person that they look look into the mirror and see. And so why must you remain armed in the face of the current environment? Because, look, it's it's common sense. You know, I I know that, uh, you know, guns are sensationalized. Uh, The Second Amendment is... Uh, sensationalized, and it's almost either you're forced or against us by some. We've gone into these political corners. I look at it really kind of from more of a, a matter-of-fact, common-sense perspective, that it, a, a gun, a firearm is a tool, and it ha- has no political leaning. And in a crisis, I want all the tools available to me that I might need. And so that would be uh, a firearm or firearms. It would be my first aid kit. It would be, you know, this brain on top of my shoulders. 
It would be a plan for my family and then a plan for my community. Uh, but at the end of the day, during a crisis, you want tools. And absent those tools, it impacts what decisions you can make. Now, maybe a crisis won't happen. Or maybe a crisis will not happen that will require you to utilize a firearm. Hey, good thing. But what you don't want to do is somehow impact your ability to survive by making a decision based on political reasons not to have the tools you need during a crisis. That's huge right there. Don't get stuck in the politics when your life is on the line. Where should we go for our first step? Well, you know, I've, Ken, I've been, uh, as I said, a big fan. And, uh, and and so I like what I'm hearing from you. I think you have started to trailblaze a bit. You've started to trailblaze a bit in terms of um, kind of this common sense approach uh, to the Second Amendment, that it's an every man's amendment. It's nothing complicated about it. Uh, the right to bear arms is absolute. That may not be in practice, but certainly in intent. And so, you know, you have, by virtue of who you are, you're standing in the community. Uh, I'm a man of faith, so I certainly um, recognize what that means to you. And there's this sense that uh, somehow that's a conflict, that you can't be a Christian man of faith and want the tools necessary to ensure the freedom and security of your family. That's a, it's just a really puzzling circumstance. But but I think you're, you are trailblazing in the right direction. And then as we seek to kind of connect that constitutional right to bear arms to family and community preparedness, I, I think that's what's next. And I think, you know, I'm excited about some of our dialogue. Again, I, uh, you've, you've already been trailblazing in that direction. And my hope is that uh, men like you will continue to focus us towards that kind of self-reliance, community preparedness focus that is not dependent on a government entity. So, you know, certainly can connect to the government and we want our government supporting us and defending us. That's what we pay all these tax dollars for. But at the end of the day, you know, a, a preparedness plan that exclusively relies on the government is a flawed plan. That's a plan doomed to fail. And that's, that's shirking responsibility, quite frankly. Um, uh, so I, I think we're going in the right direction. We need to support uh, people who think like you, and uh, and I'm prepared to do that. Man, thank you so much for this. And this is going to be our first intro to uh, a series that I'm hoping, well, I don't, even, I don't even have to imagine it's going to be a success. It's just it's so much greatness coming out of here. I'm, I got like a little notebook on the side because you threw a couple of really good words, man. I have to <laughs> use for the future. But, but You're too kind. Don, thank you, man. Thank you for starting this dialogue, for being a part of the show. And um, how can folks reach you? Ken, the easiest way to reach me right now is on Facebook. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm live on Facebook, very active, uh, freedom-focused, uh, and, you know, just Don L. Rondo at Facebook, on Facebook. And I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Don L. Rondo. And then for the freedom-focused, pro-Second Amendment individual, uh, they can actually contact me on my public email, and that's Don L. Rondo at AOL.com. Got it. All right, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. You too.
Being an armed citizen means having a gun with you all the time. Carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable. Whether you choose our Super Tuck Deluxe or Mini Tuck, you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed, prepared to face unforeseen dangers. Crossbreed holsters are handmade in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try-it-free guarantee. Order your holster today at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Why are guns so expensive? That was a fair enough question. But did you know that it has racist roots? One of the reasons handguns are expensive is to prevent them from being purchased by poor people. It started out being an economical way to keep them out of the hands of blacks. The foundation of gun laws in America are based on racism. You know, it's not a problem until a black guy wants one. It started after the Civil War when Army and Navy revolvers became available for sale in 1870 to 1880. And this is the revolver seen in the movies by folks like John Wayne and Rooster Cogburn. These famous Navy users include Wild Bill Hickok, John Henry Doc Holliday, Robert E. Lee, Nathan B. Forrest, not to be confused with Forrest Gump's great-great-great-grandfather, John Coffey, Jack Hayes, Bigfoot Wallace, Ben McCullough, Addison Gillespie, and most Texas Rangers prior to the Civil War. The Colt Model 1861 Navy was a cap and ball, 36 caliber revolver. That means it's a six-shot, single-action percussion weapon produced by Colt. It incorporated the creeping or ratchet loading lever and round barrel of the 44 caliber Army model of 1860, but had a barrel one-half inch shorter at 7.5 inches. The 1851 Navy revolver was a widespread or was used wide. It was used a lot. <laughs> I couldn't get widespread out for nothing um, during the Civil War and the frontier of the West. And it's pretty much exactly the same. There's a picture of it on the show notes for episode number 394. While similar in design, the Colt Army Model 1860 had a lighter recoil out here of the, than the 1861 Navy's 36 caliber and was preferred by some of the cavalry soldiers. In 1870, Tennessee banned selling all but the Army and Navy model handguns, i.e. the most expensive ones, which are beyond the means of most blacks and laboring people. In 1881, Arkansas enacted an almost identical ban on the sale of cheap revolvers, while in 1902, South Carolina banned the sale of handguns to all but, quotes, sheriffs and their special deputies, i.e. goons and the Klan. In 1893 and 1907, respectively, Alabama and Texas attempted to put handguns out of the reach of blacks and poor whites through extremely heavy taxation. In the Deep South, slavery-era bans on arms possessions by blacks continued to be enforced by hook or by crook. The cheap revolvers of the 19th and early 20th centuries referred to as suicide specials the Saturday Night Special label not becoming widespread until reformers and politicians took up the gun control cause during the 1960s. But let me stop there for a minute. The term Saturday Night Special is racist because it was believed that, well, the story goes, there was a guy who was a, a, uh, a journalist and he was writing about 
having fun in some of the nightclubs, the dives, the speakeasies. And he says if he had his druthers, if he had it his way, he wanted to be black only on Saturday where you could just party with wanton abandon, drink like a fool, get drunk, and if you didn't get killed by a Saturday night special or a cheap handgun and didn't die on nigger town Saturday night, you'd be all right. So that's where that came from. Then was there was an argument about cheap handguns, about it being the cause of crime. But according to Under the Gun, Weapons, Crime, and Violence in America, that was written by sociologist James D. Wright, Peter H. Rossi, and Kathleen Daly, the authors who undertook an exhaustive, exhaust, exhaustive federally funded critical review of gun issue research, found no conclusive proof that cheap handguns are used in crime more than expensive ones. Interesting enough, the makers of quality guns tried to stifle the competition by actually helping with that uh, myth and sometimes supported bans on cheap handguns and the importation of cheap military surplus weapons. Don Cates observed that the Gun Control Act of 1968, which banned mail-order gun sales and the importation of military surplus firearms, was something domestic manufacturers have been really trying to do for decades. But the evidence leads one to the conclusion that cheap handguns are considered threatening primarily because minorities and poor whites can afford them. So there you have it. Saturday Night Special is a pejorative or slang term for any inexpensive handgun. It's sometimes called a SNS in shorthand. And traditionally, Saturday Night Specials have been defined in some legal jurisdictions as compact, inexpensive handguns with a barrel length of under three inches for pistols, overall length under six inches, and low perceived quality, although there is no universal official definition. The term junk gun is used more now for the same class and is aimed at regulating inexpensive gun use. Another term used now is a mouse gun or pocket pistol, which is less offensive. The state of Maryland used the term Saturday Night Special in the 70s and up until uh, the 90s used it a lot. But I would like to think that I helped stop it back then when I was testifying a lot and flagging it as being a racist connotation. When Glock started selling his new pistol in the 1980s, uh, the price point was like $350, $375. I remember they were pushing that thing hard at our agency. They were pushing hard in the nation's capital. Metropolitan Police um, bought one, had a whole bunch of issues. I remember buying one um, that they had used, marked MPD on the side, and sold it because they had so many problems, which was actually training, not the firearm. But because that price point was so low, Glock couldn't get his pistol into the Maryland stores. So he had to up it to 450 to get the Glock pistol, Model 17, into regular folks' hands. Had nothing new with quality. It was all on race. Economics, baby, economics. All because of Maryland's racist past, racist laws. And there you have it. You heard it here.
want to thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show. Thank you for being a part of my life. I want to thank all my patrons that you can find them on patreon.com, Black Man with a Gun, that support and keep this show going in between the good times and the bad times. I wouldn't have got this far with if it wasn't for you. And that's why I'm making this change and using all the friends that I got. I mean, I got an arsenal of really great Americans and they got stuff to contribute to make us all better, to save us, to keep us safe, to protect what matters to us. And you'll be hearing it more on this as we grow this brand, as we change it. I feel pretty good about it. I think you can tell. Until next week. Dr. Seuss reminded me that today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. All right, this concludes another week of us being together. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me at blackmanwithagun.com and all my sites on blanchardmediagroup.com. Until next week, shalom, baby. What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you pull your earbuds out and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song And I'll try not to sing out of key Ah, but I get by From my friends I'm gonna get a little help from us this far without you. But, but maybe he's only a little crazy, like painters or composers or, or some of those men in Washington.